Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with uh, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you going? I'm very well. And you? Uh, still breathing, still yes. orbiting the sun. Well, yeah, that's yeah, that's a good thing. <laughs> if we weren't doing that, we'd be in peril, I reckon. We might be in trouble, that's right. Now, today we're going to look at uh, Mars for two very different reasons. First of all, the European Space Agency has... Um, well, they've got a couple of things going. Uh, they've got a two-part mission. The first part seems to be going along swimmingly. The second part seems to be rather stalled and we mean that in the um, in the literal sense because we're talking about a rover uh, the rover itself isn't stalled but getting it there is but we'll find out why in a moment uh, we're also staying on mars because uh, of a crater that has been named after uh, an event that occurred uh, on earth last year that you're probably very much aware of and the ramifications of that are still being felt and a story that's captivated everybody because it's so extraordinarily extraterrestrially fantastic, and that is Tutankhamun's blade. They've been wondering about it for, uh, well, nearly 100 years, but uh, now they've uh, kind of figured something out that uh, will blow your mind if you don't already know. But first up, Fred, we're going to Mars, my favourite place in the universe. And we're focusing on um, a planned mission by the European Space Agency to uh, to send a, uh, a rover to Mars in 2020. Uh, uh, but they've run into a, a bit of a brick wall. They just seem to be forever putting this project back. What's, what's going on? <laughs> well, you're quite right, Andrew, that there is a brick wall. Um, it's called money. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it's because the allocations so far have been inadequate really for the technological development um, so this is uh, mars is uh, sorry esa the european space agency this is their exo mars project looking specifically for life on mars which is the first time a spacecraft has been designed to do that and a couple in the past have had that as a sort of side <coughs> a, a sort of a side mission but exo mars is all they try i think it was in the 70s uh, 1976. Yeah, that's to, right. To, to dig up a bit of dirt to see if they could find life. And... Yeah, the the Viking the that's... Viking landers had that, and actually the Beagle project also um, would have looked for signs Which was of the a one that was lost. The one that they yes, only found it, it the other day. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> actually, more than a year ago, but they did find it. Yeah, uh, with technical terms, that's the other day. The, yes, the, the the Beagle project uh, was a project that everybody thought 
had crashed on the surface of Mars, but uh, landed successfully, we, we discovered uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, but didn't deploy its solar panels properly. But that too was, um, was a mission that had uh, signs of metabolism on Mars as one of its, one of its goals. The European Space Agency's uh, ExoMars project, though, is a, is a very ambitious one that has a much bigger budget than Beagle ever had. Uh, the Beagle 2 project was, was a very low bu budget one, and, and it underlines the fact that you've really got to put the money into these things if they're going to work successfully. Um, actually, uh, ExoMars is already on its way because there is a spacecraft uh, which was launched a few months ago uh, which is the, the sort of first part of the ExoMars project. And it is designed to go into orbit around Mars later this year, <clears throat> which will make uh, studies of the Martian atmosphere uh, in very great detail to look at things like the radiation uh, doses that the surface would receive, the chemical composition of the, uh, of the upper atmosphere, really to sample in great detail the, the atmosphere of Mars with a view to asking the question whether that could sustain life. But the, I guess the real focus of ExoMars is on the, on the lander, and it is a, a robotic rover that is, planned to be, is being planned to be sent. Uh, that is a very expensive project and has a very checkered history. Uh, it's been one that uh, the various uh, contributors to ExoMars, and that actually includes not just ESA, but Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, mm. they've basically failed to meet financial and technological uh, technological deadlines. Sure. And for a, for a while... Sorry, didn't yeah, mean to be sarcastic, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it did look as though, as though there was a risk of it being cancelled. Um, and that sort of put a big question mark over ExoMars. And really, the only reason why it's in the news at the moment is that there is a stay of execution because there has been a, a meeting in Paris of um, the, the senior people involved with the, uh, the, uh, the ExoMars project, the various representatives from the space agencies of the individual uh, countries. And what they have agreed to do is put, first of all, a, a fresh schedule out there to, to try and, you know, um, avoid the pitfalls that the current schedule has experienced. They've put a more realistic schedule out there, which means, I think, launch in 2022. Um, then uh, they have injected an immediate boost of, uh, it's actually 77 million euros, uh, which will keep the, the current development process going on uh, until a sort of full solution to the financial problems of the of the rover is found. Uh, th that is a kind of interim solution, but at least it means that these space agencies involved with ExoMars are breathing a sigh of relief and hopefully means that um, there is time to regroup and, and get things back on an even keel uh, and back on a more sound footing. That's, so that that's when... Mega bucks, though, 77 million yes, euros. That's like three sextillion that... Australian dollars. It's just... It, it's... <laughs> It's yeah. amazing money. I mean, jokes aside, uh, the the search for life beyond Earth is 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 growing ever stronger, and uh, Mars has always been one that's captivated us. Although we're starting to look at other targets in our own solar system, but uh, it it is it, yeah, as you and I have spoken about many times. There there seems to be more and more evidence stacking up that could could show there may have been life in the past on Mars, 
or maybe there is still somehow somewhere life in a in a minute um, uh, state existing on the planet. Indeed, that's right. So, I, I guess you you know there are there are um, many many people in the scientific world who think this is the biggest question that faces humanity in a in a, in the sense of pure scientific knowledge. Are we alone? Is there anywhere else in the universe that has uh, given rise to life and that has supported it at least to some, um, you know, to some level of, of development. Uh, and that's why I think uh, because that is such a, a big question and one that really could change our view of ourselves if it's answered in the affirmative, that's why there is such a, 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 an imperative among these funding bodies to try and make this thing work and to basically get the thing off the ground, both literally and figuratively. Um, so the, the current, uh, the, the, the sort of, uh, basically the bottom line in all this, the summary, is that uh, these member states of ESA are back on the drawing board in terms of their financial package for ExoMars uh, and the planning and what they want to do, uh, the European Space Agency, when there is a Council of Ministers meeting in December, uh, in Lucerne, uh, in, in Switzerland, they will basically have an answer as to what the financial plan is. So uh, maybe this story will reappear again in December, Andrew, and perhaps we can, uh, I hope we can say then that uh, they will have ticked off on, on a sound financial plan for the project. Yes, fingers crossed. I mean, um, the, the, the need to know is just one of those things that's not going to go away and uh, if we were somehow to find evidence of past life or existing life on Mars or, or somewhere, somewhere else in the solar system it would uh, certainly send the scientific world uh, into um, I don't know uh, into a real buzz but the, the biblical world as well I think would start to go well oh hang on a second <laughs> What's going on? It would be um, it would be quite an extraordinary thing. I think um, that's right. From philosophical and uh, you know uh, all kinds of perspectives, as well as the uh, as well as the scientific one, it is a is a big issue, and I think um, one that we will face with uh, <laughs> with due fortitude when the time comes. Yes, indeed, we will. All right. Well, hopefully they get this thing off the ground because you know putting another rover on Mars that's pretty cool. I I think you know we've, we've proven it can be done. We've proven that they can be very useful up there. Let's uh, let's hope they can get this one up there because it's every time they put something up there, it's a little bit more advanced, a little bit more capable, and we get a little bit more hopeful. That's right. Mm. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to stay on Mars because uh, there's been a naming. Now, you and I have often spoken in the past about astronomers and their naming of things like the very big rover or the quite large rock. Uh, <laughs> the QLR, it would be. Yes. <laughs> a chest, of course. Sort of. Uh, now we've um, named a crater after a disaster. <laughs> I think this is in keeping with uh, the the common trend of not naming things very well. But you better tell the story. There could be a good reason behind this. Yes, there is a good reason, and it and it's much more um, it's much more human than that. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, the first thing is that um, the the naming of objects in space, whether it's whether it's planets and their satellites or uh, or 
features on on bodies beyond the Earth, uh, like craters and uh, mountains on planets like Mars and moons like our own moon or or the other moons of the solar system. These are all the province of the International Astronomical Union, uh, which is the kind of governing body of astronomy. And, and even they've though a, they've got a pretty cool name. I mean, the, the IAU. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, they are—they're um, really the the, the body that um, the, the only body, in fact, in the world that's that's got the uh, that's got the mandate uh, to give names to things, which uh, you know means that um, when you do your when you when you pay for your name a star experience, you you are basically not naming a star you're uh, you know you're you're basically uh, uh, characterizing it in a way that's that's a, a very limited applicability you're not you're not giving it an absolute name on the other hand the astronomical international astronomical union does so anything that uh, is going to be named has to get past them now uh, craters and features on places like the moon and mars often are named after people in fact on the moon uh, I think I'm right in saying they're all named after people who've made some sort of contribution to the Earth's history. Many astronomers in there, of course, but but other people as well, astronauts and and notable uh, uh, people in the in the world of science and commerce, ha- have been recognised by having their um, their places named uh, on craters on the Moon. Uh, Mars has a different convention. You can basically um, uh, name things uh, after uh, Places here on Earth, uh, among other things, and it's that that has driven one particular science scientist, uh, a, a researcher by the name of Charling de Haas. I think that is how his name is pronounced. He's at uh, the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands, and he's somebody who studies the geography of Mars, the, the you know the, the the landscape and landform of Mars, using of course data that have come back from both rovers and more especially orbiting spacecraft around Mars, um, of which there are there are several that are surveying the planet's surface. So Charling um, uh, de Haas, uh, he basically has a colleague uh, who um, worked. Uh, in Nepal, uh, studying Himalayan glaciers. And uh, his colleague lived in the town of Langtang, Langtang in, in Nepal, and was devastated when that town was itself hit by one of the worst ever earthquakes in 2015. That mm. village uh, suffered enormously uh, in the earthquake. Uh, at least 215 people lost their lives. Um, many of them were visitors because it's a, such a popular site for, you know, for visiting the Himalayas. And, and there was an avalanche that essentially uh, overwhelmed the village. So um, the point about uh, naming uh, this crater after that, after that village is, first of all, to provide a tribute, a lasting tribute to the, the, the lives that were lost in that disaster, but also um, in, in some sense to highlight the links between these two places, because the crater on Mars itself has got evidence of glaciation. It's a crater that has uh, many, um, basically, things that look like drainage channels, um, uh, which flow into the crater from the top 
of the wall. They're probably water flows. We, we now know that you get these flows occurring on Mars. And then beneath them, there are various ridges that have all the uh, hallmarks of having been caused by glaciation, by ice flows on Mars in a period of um, many billions of years ago when Mars uh, had a lot more ice on the surface than there is now. There is ice. Um, a lot of ice on the surface of Mars and even more under the surface. But uh, mm. uh, in, in, at a time when it was um, in, in, in a past era, maybe about three to four billion years ago, uh, Mars would have had glasses on the surface. And that's where, where, these, um, where these marks had their origin. So a very appropriate thing that um, this, uh, this crater is taking the name. And the end result of this story is that the International Astronomical Union has indeed accepted that proposal. Um, and has given the official decree that the name should be Langtang in honour of this village. That's lovely and um, I, I think very appropriate. I, I uh, did speak to one of the villages of um, one of the many affected um, zones in, in Nepal uh, not long after that earthquake because she had connections with this part of the world where I am. Uh, we have a, a team that goes over very regularly to look after villages there uh, in terms of their eyesight. And um, mm. uh, I, I spoke to one of that team who was able to put me in touch with one of those villages. We actually successfully made a phone call through uh, to the to the village. Uh, she was or is their interpreter when they're over there. And she was talking to me, and, and aid hadn't even arrived when um, when I was on the phone to her, and it, it had been days. And uh, some towns, had, the first people they'd seen from the outside were TV crews. It was just one of the most horrible scenarios that you could ever imagine. And uh, I, I hate to say it, but there's there's so much um, uh, there's so many issues at a government level in that country that um, one wonders if aid had. Ever, ever got to some places, unfortunately. But um, it's good that at least there's been some kind of recognition, even even if it is off-world, as the case may be. That's right, yes. That's mm. right. So it's nice that you've got that link as well. There you go. Yeah, yeah. they're, they're just lovely people. Lovely yeah. people. Uh, and, and one of the poorest nations in the world, sadly. You're listening to uh, Space Nuts with me, Andrew Dunkley, and Fred Watson as well. Roger, you're live. Very here, also. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, before we get to our last topic, I did mean to say in regard to Mars and the naming of places on that planet that I, I await with bated breath the naming of Watson Mons. Got my <laughs> fingers crossed for that one. I think your bated breath might be bated for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's move on. And, uh, and, and gosh, this, this just astounds me. And this all has to do with the Egyptian uh, boy king, Tutankhamun, who um, was, was buried. He died young and he was buried with all his stuff. And one of the only pharaohs to be found so many years later, thousands of years later, with all his stuff still intact because most of it uh, was, uh, well, most of the kings in the, in the, the Valley of uh, were robbed long after their deaths by, by grave robbers. Tutankhamun seemed to have been, uh, seems to have been immune from that. Uh, one of the things that they found was his iron blade, and for years it's been a mystery, but uh, now they think they've figured it out. This is an, um, this is an intriguing story. That's right. 
So, so the, the dagger that um, actually accompanies the uh, the mummy of Tutankhamun, it, it's, uh, I think it was um, in the folds of, you know, the folds of cloth that were used to, to, to wrap him up. Um, this is a piece of extraordinary art. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful looking uh, ceremonial weapon uh, with, uh, first of all, a very finely crafted uh, sheath made of gold, which is tooled in a very, uh, well, an exquisite way, mm. uh, an, an ornate handle, um, uh, which culminates in a, in a, a rock crystal uh, carving at the end. Uh, really re- remarkably beautiful uh, um, technology, given that this was made uh, about 1300 BC, uh, at the time of Tutankhamun's death. But what is of interest in this story is that the blade of the of the dagger, which is made of iron, and iron, of course, tends to rust over very long periods of time, even in a climate as dry as Egypt's climate. But this blade is still in very good condition, and in in a way, it mimics. Uh, stainless steel, you know, the, the stainless steel that we uh, common, commonly find that doesn't doesn't go rusty because of its its content. Mm. So, what uh, or its metallic content? Why is this in the news at the moment? Because um, a, a group of Egyptian and Italian scientists have analysed the iron in the blade of this knife. Uh, they've done it not by scraping bits off or anything as invasive as that. They've used X-rays. Uh, to basically analyse the crystal structure of the of the metallic content of the knife, and they found uh, a lot of nickel, high amounts of nickel in the iron, and also uh, a, a particularly characteristic makeup of the iron itself, its its isotopic ratios, uh, that points to an extraterrestrial origin. Ooh. So. These uh, scientists have said this looks as though it's iron that has come from a meteorite. And in fact, what they, they, they took the, the, um, basically the, uh, uh, the, the process further because they think they've identified which meteorite it came from. Now, that, uh, that's because... the part that just blows my mind. I mean, identifying the raw material as possibly being from a meteorite, I can understand. I mean, with the technology we have today and being able to break things down even with x-rays, sure. But being able to identify the meteorite, that, that I can't get my head around. <laughs> so what, what they did um, was that they, they looked at uh, actually 20 different meteorites, that all of which are known to have fallen within the vicinity of the of the kingdom uh, in Egypt where Tutankhamun ruled. Uh, and that was actually quite a large area, you know, included um, parts of the Sahara Desert, included uh, modern-day Iran. It was a, a, a very much a, a, a sphere of um, a sphere of influence that covered a, a large area, physical area on the surface of the earth. But what they did was they looked for the isotopic and, um, you know, percentage nickel structure in these meteorites and they found one that pretty well exactly matches the iron in the blade of the knife and it's got a name it's called Kaga uh, it fell near Alexandria uh, it actually wasn't found this meteorite was only found in the year 2000 although it probably fell many many um, well many centuries before that mm. 
So that, um, that meteorite seems to have been the source of the iron from which this blade was known. Now, the bit that blew my mind uh, in this story, uh, Andrew, is that the iron uh, is actually the most precious part of this knife because uh, in the, um, you know, in the, um, well, the 14th century BC, when this, work, when this knife was made, gold was actually more common than iron is. So iron was a, a rarer metal. They hadn't learned how to turn iron ore into metallic iron. They hadn't and been so, in Australia yet, had they? <laughs> exactly. The so they growing on trees. They, they, that, that's right, <laughs> quite so. But they hadn't, what, what, what they didn't have is the wherewithal to do that, to yeah. turn it into metallic iron. So the iron that comes in a meteorite itself is a sort of, like almost like a gift from the gods, because if they know this has come from the sky, and this is such a rare metal, then you can understand why it should be um, basically worked and tooled into uh, the blade of a knife that would be fit for uh, the, the boy king. Um, so really, uh, I think it's a remarkable story. Um, I suspect that there will be other metallic objects that will be analysed by the uh, the people who who you know who are custodians of of all these artifacts that have been discovered in Egypt uh, to find whether they have met, uh, meteoritic metal in them as well. There is one other uh, iron artifact uh, which actually predates the Tutankhamun dagger by I think something like two thousand years. Mm -hmm. um, that is a set of beads uh, which uh, have have iron in them. Uh, and once again, uh, they have been analysed to uh, and shown to contain meteoritic iron. This is uh, high proportions of nickel and cobalt. So uh, very much uh, part of the same story, something that's come from the sky uh, that is rare uh, in their experience and is regarded as almost sacred, perhaps, in its, uh, in its import. And so it, uh, iron beads and iron knives, yeah. there may be more artefacts that will be discovered. And it just makes you wonder if... Maybe they knew what they'd stumbled across or if it was just a, a chance find. It, it just opens up all sorts of questions. Yes. So I think, you know, but if, if, you, if you imagine yourself to be a, a person um, uh, in that era and you basically stumble across something that is so different from all the other rocks around you uh, and weighs a lot and has this cu curious greyish, uh, texture to it, then yes, you you would regard that as being unusual and uh, and extraordinary, and try and make something out of it. Mm. Well, they certainly did, and it is really impressive. And and I suppose it also underlines the standing that he had in his society for them to to go to such great lengths to create something so beautiful to to send him away with, basically. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Mm. Very interesting. Thank you, Fred, as always, and nice to talk to you, and we'll, we'll catch you again next week. That sounds good, Andrew. It's always good to talk, and thanks again. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and you've been listening to Space Nuts. Uh, thank you for following us, and don't forget to keep in touch with us on Facebook 
and uh, tell your friends and don't forget to write uh, a review on iTunes. And we look forward to catching you again next week. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Tights.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.